In the public health system, the pressure is on. Growing wait lists, ambulance ramping, staff burnout. And there's a role for technology to play with all these issues. We know that. But for technology to actually have some traction in this human-centered industry of healthcare, the technologies need to be human-centered. But what does that even mean? What does that look like? Is it something that we just talk about? Or will we actually see any of it happen? Well, with me today on the show, I'm joined by Ken Saman from Personify Care and Paul Lambert from Think Human. And in this conversation, we're talking about harnessing the power of the crowd to make digital health work for humans. And how do you translate health strategy into practical, real-world solutions that'll actually be seen in our lifetime? Collaboration starts with the Conversation Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, a podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. Here's your host, Peter Birch. With me today is Ken Saman, CEO and founder of Personify Care, an Australian digital health company that helps healthcare teams across Australia, New Zealand, and the US to convert clinical protocols into a digital patient experience to eliminate the administrative burden of managing patient pathways. Joining Ken in this conversation is Paul Lambert, director at Think Human. Paul's a passionate advocate for human-centered solutions in health and human services and in building connections between health tech and industry. He's a qualified physio and has extensive executive experience across healthcare. How you going, gents? Hi, Pete. Good Pete. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Good to chat. Great to have you on the podcast. So I appreciate you making the time. Let's fill in some of those gaps and get a bit more context. Tell us about yourselves and your background, and then I want to know why we've got you both on the show. So, Ken, firstly, tell us about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Pete. So, Ken Samad, I'm the CEO, founder of Personify Care, a digital health company that's been going for about eight years now. And our real mission in life is to connect patients to the best possible care before and after their face-to-face encounter with a clinician in a health system. And really, we, we started eight years ago with looking at it from a very patient-centered perspective, but also from a clinician perspective. And that was how do we make sure that from a patient perspective, you get the information and support you need before and after a treatment procedure or any other encounter with the health system. And from a clinician perspective, how do you give them visibility to the information they need about their patients in a really seamless way? So that's how we started. Yeah, really important. Got it, got it. Paul? Yeah, thanks, Pete. Paul Lambert, I'm Director of Think Human. We're an Adelaide-based company that have been working in health and human services for the last five or six years with a really strong focus around a range of techniques really to try and understand, hear and account for lived experience. So the, the real world experience that people have now that sometimes it's sometimes health consumers, it's sometimes customers, it's sometimes clinicians, but really it comes back to trying to use some tricks and techniques to make sure that those voices are front and central in, in big projects. My background is, is public health, as you've said, a physio to trade, but a very, very lapsed physio these days. I spent the last 15 years working in health services uh, across mostly Australia and the UK and recently left the public sector here in South Australia to join the Think Human Practice and really try and bring some of that expertise around human-centered design into digital health and try and bridge that gap into what can be a pretty hard-to-navigate system in public health. Uh, and there's always that sense that don't touch it, you might break it, for a system which is quite delicately poised at various different times, as you alluded to in your introduction. 
Yeah, no, we, let's unpack that a bit in a sec. But what brings you both together, Ken? I think from our perspective, a couple of things um, in previous projects that we've worked on together all had from the perspective of that public health uh, service. And But I think as we've started to explore some new opportunities, probably that shared value around how to make life easier for patients and people working within the health system, the humans as we call them, right? Having that shared value around building sustainable digital health solutions that make life easier for both the patient and the people working in the health system in an environment where this sort of thing is really needed. So I think that's where we're starting to explore some opportunities to kick forward. I got it. Let's try and understand it a bit more then. So in public health, we've touched on some of those issues already. How does a health system even start to think about this concept of digital transformation to address some of these issues around growing wait lists and ramping and burnout that we mentioned? One of the things to understand, obviously, about public health, but even private health organisations is the complexity that are inherent in these organisations. They, they are not a single monolith and they don't normally work in a linear kind of way. I mean, you can't necessarily pull lever A and expect action X, Y and Z to happen as a result. So there's an inevitability of some organic nature in terms of how digital transformation grows up. It grows up at many points through organisations. It grows up at the coalface through the dedication, understanding and expertise of individuals. But it also, in my view, needs to be supported and driven by a central strategy or a roadmap, if you like, that actually says to the 10,000 or 15,000 people that work in that organisation, this is what's important to us, this is the direction we're going to go and this is how we're going to get there. Because it allows then, or gives the best possible chance then for all of those people to kind of push and pull in, in one direction and that's really important in an area like digital health and digital health adoption because you do need that shared vision because we know that there are you know, many ways up the digital health transformation mountain and we need to be able to provide people a clear path to harness their individual innovation and energy and push that into a similar kind of direction. Yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting. One of the things that we've been seeing over the last several years as a technology company working with public health service providers as well as powerful ones is that there's been this shift, right? That even pre-pandemic, we were seeing the numbers around demand of health services grow quite quickly. And then the pandemic hits. And so the role of digital teams within public health services has really shifted in a number of dimensions, right? One, now as a public health service, the reliance on digital to support the growing demand from consumers has become increasingly important, but it's also become a lot more urgent, right? So you ended up with this shift in the role of these teams from being the IT department, if you like, traditionally, to now we really need digital to be a core part of our strategy as an organization if we're going to keep up with demand in the years ahead. And then the pandemic hits and all of a sudden we need to do both of the long-term thinking around how we're going to manage the picture to also solving some really urgent problems around how we deal with different models of care, increased demand on the health service because of the pandemic, and then trying to do all of that stuff at the same time as staff being under increased pressure, burnout, et cetera, and how do we support them in, in the current climate as well. So we've seen this real shift in the role of digital transformation teams from you know, the back office IT department where we're making sure that the Wi-Fi works and we have enough PCs or printers in, in the hospital 
to a world where it's a really strategically focused role. Kind of in addition to that, having to have that different timescale around delivering some of the stuff. So gone are the days where you can have a five-year strategy and wait for the outcome at the end of the five years. In the current climate, you need to have that big picture view, but at the same time, have some runs on the board as you go through. So that's been a really interesting shift as well. You're right in that there's not been that sense of urgency or burning platform, obviously, that, that we had, which started a few years ago with the pandemic. Now it's about seeing that through and continuing that trajectory. But it's an interesting point that you raised around, you know, the, the strategies, there are different health systems that have different capability to not just create those strategies and formulate them, but then actually execute and deliver on them. It all requires these guest resources that are necessary in terms of people and funding and the time to be able to not just come up with and think about some of these challenges, but actually implement them. How do you find that some of these health systems can actually go about implementing and, and think about some of these, these challenges with all of those points? Yeah, I think that the strategy and the direction is one thing, as you rightly say, but you know, one of the things that we learned working with Personify was the roadmap to implementation can be shorter than perhaps is traditionally thought through. And that's through ensuring that you've got good conversations up front with the people that are going to be using and running those systems, a good understanding of what the benefits are for the organization and for the customer, the patient at the end of it. So that real clear value proposition, this is what we do, this is what we're for. We're not going to deliver you automated coffee at quarter past seven every morning, but what we will do is to deliver best-in-class digital pathways, which will release your staff, which will allow you then to deploy them to other areas and have a continuous conversation with your patients. And pretty much any health service in the world wants that. But again, you know, Ken talked about an, an eight-year journey that Personifiers ha- had. You know, so those lessons around best models for implementation best models for engagement and being really clear about your value proposition comes with time from a vendor point of view. And then you need to be able to find the willing customers to walk that journey with you to take a risk and to understand that the implementation of that digital strategy is not traditional implementation of strategy. You don't have five years. You don't pick one thing, implement it, and then pick the next thing and go. You're doing multiple things at multiple times. You have to fail quickly and then remodel yourself and jump back up and try again. So that the engagement model that you choose as you're doing that is really important. And I guess the counterfactual is also there. How do you find time to work with clinicians and customers or patients to do this? Well, if you don't find that time and if you can't make the case for that time, then actually what you end up doing is trying to manage the implementation through complicated change management, large sticks to try and force people to do things they'd rather not do. And that much, much harder than that early engagement, that rapid iteration on what is it that we're doing, how do we do that, and having those customers and staff front and centre as you're trying to implement that solution. Yeah, I think the, the really interesting thing about what Paul just said is, you know, if you boil it down, the real challenge for digital transformation team in the current climate is, I have a strategy. How do I actually deliver on that strategy in an environment where we've got more and more complex patients coming through the door each day with a workforce that's under more and more pressure and the organization is relying on us more than ever to deliver some of the benefits of what digital can deliver? One of the things that we're starting to see with quite a few health services that are doing things slightly differently is if you take a step back, all of a sudden, the digital 
transformation team or technology team within the health service has more demand than ever on their time and their resources. So again, the shift that we're starting to see is, is for some of those teams, they're starting to realize that their own resources are limited. Some of the models that we're seeing is how do you actually deploy digital transformation initiatives by enabling the staff and the workforce on the ground to lead some of these initiatives. So being more of an enabler and a supportive uh, resource to to these projects rather than being the, if you like, bottleneck to any digital stuff happening within the health service, right? And Pete, I think the other thing to say, you know, I don't think people should be suffering under the, the notion that health services and health services staff don't want change. Absolutely not the case. We can see time and time again when the solutions are well thought through where we understand the problem we're trying to solve and we've got a great match then between needs of the organisation, engagement of the humans and the solution that we're actually putting in place, these things run really well. And they make people's life easier and they give people time back and they create the data that we need to be able to generate the next generation of healthcare, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. So if we get this right, we're pushing on open doors and that's exactly what we want to try and do. If you've been kicking around this industry a bit like me, or maybe even you're brand new to digital health, you've probably worked out that health tech is not an individual sport. Whatever you're trying to achieve, whether you're delivering healthcare for patients, or you're building health technology, or perhaps you're helping deploy solutions across health systems, you need a tribe, a community of like-minded individuals who just get it that if we're going to transform healthcare, then technology is going to play a huge part in it. So to learn and connect about health tech and level up your game, consider joining our THT Plus membership community. We've got options for every stage of growth, whether you're a solo individual or a startup or scale-up company. As an individual, you get access to our exclusive community forum, you get a warm intro to two other members from me each month, you get free access to our quarterly virtual summits and a bunch of other exclusive goodies. Companies can bring team members into the community, plus you get a presence on our website as a THT Plus member, you can post content like news events and jobs, and of course we love to showcase our members, so when you join as a company THT Plus member, you'll get to appear on this podcast with your very own episode. This podcast is made possible through the support of our members, it's literally the heart of everything we do, so consider joining as a THT Plus member, you can join anytime. Online, just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT+. I know there are many that work within digital transformation teams within hospital and health services and local health districts and whatever you call them in each state, health systems that those individuals and those teams are charged with the responsibility of implementing technology, but at the same time, taking into consideration all of those factors that we mentioned. It can be easy to go down the route and understandable to go down the route of thinking of, well... We've already undergone significant change and constant reiteration and constant uncertainties. We've got that challenge of the workforce where, where you know only X percent of them actually are able to come in and work. So there's already pressure. We don't want to put more pressure on more people. Wouldn't it be nice to just go back to normal and like just to be able to get on and do stuff rather than introduce another change that then creates more issues? But when you look at those that have the vision to be able to say, you know what, we've got all these issues and they will continue to spiral and increase if we don't implement a change. And there isn't going to be a time when there are people all of a sudden they come back and now is a really good time to implement a change. And I think that there's also that extra challenge of, well, 
as a transformation team, if you don't have that buy-in from above that will essentially give you the permission to fail fast, as you say, Paul, or when things don't go to plan that you don't feel like you're going to get in trouble because you're the one that stuck your neck out and said, let's do this transformation. So there's a lot of pressure on those transformation teams to be able to go forward and say, you know what, we're going to bat for whether it's a vendor or a partner or whatever it might be and say, hey, this is actually going to have a meaningful impact. So it's a challenging environment. Absolutely. Look, and all organizations are at the moment weighing up where they are on that on that continuum and that spectrum. Because there does come a point where actually when you've got nurses working double shifts and you've got doctors doing long overtime and you've got cleaning staff who are struggling to keep up, well, you do actually have to, you have to choke it back and you actually have to say, the moment we just have to do this. But you're right also in that there's never a good time to be doing change. Change is a constant. And again, the alternative of don't implement this system, don't capture this data, don't reform this process has implications further down the track that really no health executive, no board wants to be held accountable to because you don't want to be that health service that isn't offering latest decision support, data at point of care. You know, you need to undertake the process as you can in a way which is best supported. And I think the only other thing that I would say about, you know, the fear of failing or the fear of retribution is it's one of the reasons that we at Think Human use design methodologies because design methodologies have built into them the opportunity and the expectation that you actually prototype things at the front. You actually understand what that problem is and you prototype them. There isn't the expectation you get it all right at the start. And that's quite countercultural within health. You know, you have a lot of people within health who, you know, are at the top of the tree in many different kind of spheres. And they're very reluctant to step off into a risky space if they can't see what the outcome is. And so you do have to take them on a journey to say, it's okay, this design process that we've chosen to go on together here actually has failure built in and it's fine, we'll catch you. And the great thing about it is we'll flip it up quickly and we'll go, that's what we've learned, let's try it better. This next iteration, this next prototype is going to be better and we'll be one step closer. And if we do that, we're not going to have to mop up all that change and change management at the back end of the implementation. I guess... My perspective on that, Pete, is a little different in the sense that this conversation around change starts from a model of transformation that's by design top-down, right? If you go to any nurse or, or clinician that are working double shifts and are overloaded already and say to them, we're going to change the way you're working, then their first reaction is, I'm in survival mode at the moment. Please go away, right? I have patients to look after us. But if you introduce that change, very clearly focused on how do we take out a lot of that low-value work that's currently consuming a bunch of your time and freeing up some of your, your capacity so you can do what you got into healthcare to do, which is look after your patients better and more, then as Paul was alluding to, there's, there's no pushback on that. But, and so I think where sometimes the devil is in the execution is you know, there's digital transformation and there's digital transformation. If it starts top down with a big picture, we're going to roll out a solution across the entire organization, which disrupts everyone, then that is going to have some pushback, no doubt. To me, where with digital transformation teams are being really successful is they start with the premise that the solutions to some of these problems already are well known within the frontline teams. And if we just enable those teams to solve some of their problems with some good technology that doesn't lock in the existing broken process, 
then we have something that can actually accelerate some of the executions of some of the things we're doing. Now, on the topic of failure, I think I think our approach has always been whatever we roll out has to fail fast but fail safely. Where the worst case scenario is you're back to where you started. The worst case scenario is the existing model of care that has all its checks and balances to protect and provide safe care to, to your patients. Because unless you have that in healthcare, then the idea that something's going to blow up and, and cause harm to someone is not acceptable. So fail fast, maybe, but fail safely at the same time with, with the worst case is what we currently have. Right? Good advice, yeah. You know, you touched on working with those on the front line and getting that buy-in through the process, which I think is good because it adds some color and context to these terms that we can wave our hands and sound smart at conferences at and say like co-design and human-centered design and learning health systems and everything. But are these just buzzwords or have they got like a legitimate role to play? Things like crowdsourcing, co-design, human-centered design. I think there can be both. I think they can be buzzwords, but they also can have meaning behind them. And I think that it is some of the design elements which I think are important. And for some industries, new. For some industries, not new at all. But that idea of actually working with staff and consumers, again, is not a new concept, but working with staff and consumers consistently and authentically through that process is something which I think organizations have struggled with. Big organizations over time you know, have struggled to have ongoing and authentic conversations with either staff or consumers about what it is that they want to achieve and what it is that they want to see in terms of their, you know, digital or te- technology kind of journeys. And I think that, that the methodologies that we can deploy, and they are just methods, right? There's, there's nothing magic to them. They're all written down. They're easy enough to follow, but they do actually create a scaffolding to have those meaningful and ongoing conversations with people to give yourself the best chance of A, understanding the problem you're trying to solve and B, actually getting a solution that's going to fit and is going to do those things that Ken talked about. It's going to take away that high volume, low quality, low value work, which we know that many in health are burdened and ground to a halt. So there's nothing magic to them. Are they helpful? Yeah, I think they are. Do they bring something new? Well, certainly in healthcare, I think that concept of design as part of that conversation, that fail fast, fail, we only fail safe, I think is, is important. Yeah, I think from my perspective, what's really interesting is you know, you look at human-centered design in any other sector and there's a well-trodden path. I think the added complexity in healthcare is that you can design a solution or a process that works really well for the patient, but is almost impossible to deliver for a clinician or an admin team or a nursing team. And you can d- design the best, most efficient process for a cardiology team that makes no sense from a patient perspective. So add, the added layer of complexity here is it has to work for both, not one or the other. And unless it works for both sides of that equation, it's not sustainable for very long. We all talk about patient-centered design, and we've seen amazing flow charts of what the patient experience might be one day. But unless you connect that to the current reality of what staff are dealing with, then it's a nice future state that we'll never get to. Right? So that's why I think from our perspective, modern technology solutions open up is the opportunity for this authentic real-world co-design model. The best people to ask about what their particular patients need in a particular clinical setting. So there's a big difference between a cancer patient, cardiology patient, and an elective surgery patient waiting for a knee replacement. The best people to ask about what the best patient-centered model of care is are the people that are dealing with those patients on a day-to-day basis. And so that's where real co-design can actually unlock some amazing opportunities as long as we're not trying to apply the same solution to elective surgery, cardiology, and cancer services. 
that's, I think, where, yes, there are buzzwords, but there are real ways of applying some of these things in the real world. Yeah, and I think, Pete, we, we, we learned some things during the pandemic. We learned many things, but we certainly had some of our assumptions challenged potentially. You know, I think there was this overriding expectation or assumption within some that digital health solutions were really only for the young and digital savvy. But actually what we learned through that pandemic is that the acceptability of telehealth, for example, was actually really quite high. And even into people in their, you know, in their 80s, they were very happy to use technology platforms as long as it worked and as long as it was easy to navigate and it gave them what they want. So I think that by engaging with the end user and the consumer as well as staff, you actually are in a position to challenge some of those assumptions. And sometimes you're surprised by what you find. And we're constantly surprised by the conversations that we have. And that surprise then gets rolled into how we think about the solutions that we come up with. And yeah, digital health solutions will never be 100%. 100% of people won't, won't take them on, but there's probably a higher acceptability of them than perhaps we had thought pre-pandemic. No, you're right. And what both you and Ken have drawn out there and highlighted is with the importance of human-centered design in healthcare, that the humans involved in health, they're not just the patients, not just the clinicians, even the health executives and everyone involved in, in that journey that there's different humans that have different stakeholders that have different needs and requirements and touch the solution in different ways. So being able to factor in all of the humans in that is is important. Yeah. And ask the question, right? Like, don't, don't assume. Ask the question. It's actually easier than you think. And, and that's the thing, that going back to where we started, which is the pressures that these teams are under to deliver something in our lifetime is that you need to be able to ask those different humans those questions and deliver something in weeks, not years now, right? So you don't have the luxury anymore of having, you know, six months of consultation with different groups, right? You have to solve a specific problem in weeks and see if it makes things any better for staff, patients, and the organization. And I guess the, the last thing I'll, I'll touch on is, is crowdsourcing. I think that's a concept that's part of our DNA as an organization at Personified Care. I guess that's how we started the company. What is crowdsourcing? I think from, from our perspective, if you think about it, when, when I jump into the car each day to come to work, to come to an office, as I sometimes do still these days, I use something called Google Maps, surprisingly, right? And every time I, I use that, why do I use it? I know how to get to work, but every now and then it saves me three or four minutes in my commute. Right? And every time I use that product, it'll make life easier for me, but also everyone else that uses Google Maps the next time around, right? So that's really what makes our product a little unique in, in what we've been trying to achieve, right? We've spent the last eight years using data around how patients and staff interact with these pathways to essentially do two things. One is reduce the friction for each patient that's interacting with these pathways, but then reduce some of that burden on staff that are trying to provide different models of care and do that in a way that for every patient that uses one of these pathways, the friction becomes less and less for the next patient. And that's really important because without that reduction in friction for the patient and then adopting it at a high rate, you don't get any of the benefits that some of these solutions might promise because without a high response rate for patients, it means they're not using it and then we've got a new efficiency gain or visibility back to the start. So we, we spend a lot of time in the background looking at data, if you like, in three dimensions, right? What do we know about the particular pathways, whether it be in cancer services, orthopedics or 
cardiology say that are being updated by clinical teams on a regular basis. What do we know about the consumers that are using those pathways? You know, what devices are they using? Time of day they're accessing various parts of that pathway. And then what are they looking at on a, on a screen, right? And what time of day do they get notified of something? We can vary all those three dimensions and then see what's going to drive a higher response rate from that patient cohort. And where we're headed to is the ability to predict what the response rate is going to be and then start to provide recommendations back to that clinical team to say, well, if you update your pathway in a certain way, you'll get a higher response rate the next patient that comes through that. And so just like I came into work this morning uh, using Google Maps and it provided me with an alternative route to my, my workplace and saved me a few minutes. That's the model that we've been kind of deploying over, over years. And I think rather than using data to predict anything from a clinical perspective, our focus has been very much focused on reducing patient friction and saving time for, for staff because that's fundamentally what, what our kids is improving health. And then I think more about, you know, moving us from the strategizing element and then bringing into action, taking these points that you say, I love the the crowdsourcing concept and what better way to get an understanding at scale, even across different types of healthcare that needs to be delivered, what has meaning, you know, it's not just based on Ken's view or one department's view on how things go. It's looking at the data in a way that can do something that that might be scalable across many. Do you think then, you know, because we always talk about this top-down versus bottom-up approach to digital transformation, do you see this almost that we need a bit of a push towards a bottom-up transformation of healthcare or you still need the the vision from above? How do you think about this whole bottom-up versus top-down approach to digital transformation? Yeah, I think we need to find ways to do both. I think that there are always going to be solutions, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's wires and boxes, whether it's how we host things you know, on the web or on-premises or whatever, that is going to need a view from across the organisation. I think what you're starting to see, though, in digital health is ways to empower educate and support that frontline decision-making, whether it's living labs or whether it's kind of that internal innovation kind of focus within large organisations, digital health institutes that are growing up around public health organisations and those clinical academic kind of collaborations between universities and health services. So I think that it needs to be both. I think it is both currently. I think we're probably more comfortable with central strategy and deployment of those plants, but they have problems in terms of how easily they are implemented. But I think there are certain limits, certainly within public health, which I know best. You can't necessarily allow carte blanche. It can't be laissez-faire. There are so many solutions and options out there that there needs to be some sense of this is where we're going and this is the smorgasbord that we'll pick from in terms of our applications, our services, whatever. But actually, we have to take staff on the journey, not to get in the way of their innovation, but actually say, this is the pathway. We'd love you to share your machine learning algorithm and use it on this platform. Or we think we can, well, here's an app designer that we can work with them and, and bring this thing into reality. Here's a, additional modules around machine learning and, and AI decision support. You know, let's do that collaborative project with the university and actually get that stuff up and running at the coalface where, where you need it. So I, I think for me, it's always going to be both, but I think large organisations have got a bit of work to do to get the right model for how they grow, empower uh, and educate their own staff around digital health. Bearing in mind, back to Ken's early point, digital health is not the same as ICT, right? We're not talking about 
people being technical in the background. We're talking about the deployment of technologies and methodologies to improve healthcare in the broadest possible sense. At the same time, you're kind of taking that on one hand, all of those different solutions and approaches to things at the same time, doing it in a, in a scalable way or a way that's is not overwhelming the system, I guess. So finding that balance is going to be really important. Yeah, I think I agree with what Paul just said in that you absolutely need both, right? You need the big picture strategy to set the direction of what the organization prioritizes in terms of what we're trying to achieve, right? When you think about it, the digital component of any health services strategy has to be about improving something, right? So then the question is, at an organizational level, what are the sets of problems we're trying to solve for? And if at an organizational level, we're trying to do something like improving the patient flow or reducing the wait list by X percent over the next period of time, using some digital solution, the actual solution that gets deployed across one unit or another might be completely different. The range of solutions you pick from might need to be completely different and the clinical workflow might need to be completely different across different sites or different parts of that organization. And so I think without that big picture, you lose track of what the priorities are of, of the organization. But you still have to come back to that question of, well, actually, how are we going to achieve some of these things as we roll through, right? You can't wait five years for something, a big bang approach that has lots of risk, lots of time. And, and what's the opportunity cost while well, we wait for that period of time for something to come out of the other end? So I think one of the big misconceptions we've been, I guess, confronting is, you know, traditionally digital is, here's a future state, let's go and build some technology to solve for this problem. And that build process takes months or years, right? I think we've, we've definitely reached a point in maturity of digital solutions where modern solutions can be deployed within the current clinical workflow, not as a means to an end in itself, right? But in a way of saying, this is step zero of how we get to that future state of what we want to get to, right? So again, if we go back to that change problem, the first thing you have to do to introduce anything is to explain to those frontline staff how are we going to make your life easier next week, right? And that has to be based on what the current process and workflow is. That's not to say that we have to lock in that workflow forever or that model of care forever. What that does is free up capacity within their team immediately, gives them data about how their unit and their organization is performing and provides them with that importantly, opportunity for improvement, right? That feedback loop of what's working, what's not, and how do we improve in a digitally mature way without disrupting the clinical care that's been provided to the patients that are still coming through the door with the view that over time, we've now set the foundation to actually deliver on that strategy and achieve that future state we're trying to achieve. And I support the pragmatics of that. You know, it's taken me a while to get my head into where Ken's coming from. I think my ongoing hesitation with essentially digitizing what we know is an inefficient process is how good are organizations then at coming back and doing the mop-up? How good are organizations are actually recognizing that this is step one? Because generally, in the context of the kind of organizations we're talking about, very large, very busy, complex, managing multiple things, trying to get staff onto the floor, trying to manage ambulance ramping, often you'll find that they don't come back and actually look at what they've digitized and ask themselves the question, is this the most efficient way? We know we did this pragmatically to get implementation in an engagement high. How do we now improve and use what is now digitized 
as the framework for us to improve and to drive efficiency. And, and I know we're going to talk about money and where we get the cash to do this. You know, my view is that large health organizations need a combination. They need a combination of external funding to drive innovation, but they also have to recognize that much of the funding that they have or much of the overspends often that they have is actually bound up in inefficient or uh, expensive process that is amenable to change and digital technology is part of that. No, I, I love that conversation. It's when we're talking about strategy to action, when you think about the practicalities of, of actually implementing anything new in a health system, what like a new care pathway, it's not like you can kind of turn off the patients for a couple of days and then turn them back on when you're ready to roll. You've got patients coming through every day at different stages and you've got, everything's always on all the time. So that, that practical, like how do you actually go about, you can't rip one thing out and put a new thing in. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to do. Yeah, well, you can and we do, but it, it's not easy, right? And it takes planning and it takes commitment and it takes that timing as well. You know, as, as we spoke about, you know, implementing large scale digital health solutions in public health organizations has been pretty bloody hard during COVID. You know, I think we just need to make sure we don't lose the ability to flex that muscle, that we don't actually say, well, this is now the new normal, everything stops, because I, I don't think we can afford to do that. We need to continue to innovate the way we deliver health services because our patients deserve it uh, and, and require it and are asking for it, but also we need it to improve the quality of care that we deliver by making work easier, better, more efficient, more rewarding for the people that we're asking to deliver those health services. I think that's where we're seeing the role of those digital teams move into, right? When you put in the infrastructure of digital solutions and provide that to the teams on the front line and give them the capacity and bandwidth to think about, okay, what's next? That's where digital teams are starting to, the successful ones are starting to emerge as, as their primary role is that improvement role, right? It's, is that feedback loop, like given the data we've seen over the last month or the last six weeks, what's next? And how do we then use that as the basis for reducing clinical variation, improving clinical outcomes, and enabling new models of care with the extra capacity we've now freed up and actually looking at the data that we're getting from patient-reported experience measures and patient feedback in real time and doing something about that rather than looking at that you know, a, a year later and saying this is how well or otherwise we did. That's where I think really successful digital teams are starting to focus rather than being the, we are the bottleneck to anything that's innovation. They become the enablers and then the drivers of that quality improvement and change based on what's already been deployed. Hey, Paul, you know, you touched on the funding because you've got to get the money from somewhere to be able to you know, implement these initiatives. When the outcomes are sometimes a bit unknown, that's, a, that's difficult to do. It might not be a clear return on investment, put X in and get Y. How do we go about funding these initiatives? Yeah, it's a really good question. And again, I think multimodal, I think, is the only way to go. There will be certain initiatives that will sit very nicely in a research framework. And that's the great thing about public health organisations, the partnership with universities and other institutes, allow us to actually explore through a, a rigid and ethically approved framework around well, what does new look like and how does it deliver better care? So I think there are options which are a little underdeveloped but have huge potential. I think that there's a recognition that in many areas, health services in Australia are, are being left behind in terms of uh, comparison to the rest of the world. And so I think central governments do have a role there to educate and to upskill both workforce, but also then to make available 
funding for large scale change, whether that's the, you know, the shift into the cloud, whether it's advanced analytics, whether it's you know, any of these large reforms which require central government support, you know, and the access and those kinds of things. So I think that will always be there. And then I think the third mechanism is actually the innovation which happens from within, the recognition that through the adoption and deployment of good solutions, you know, technical human solutions, actually there are more efficient ways to deliver services. There are more effective ways to be able to do that. And actually we spend billions at the moment on health services. We can reframe how we deliver some of those services, invest some within technology and then free up people's time to go back and do things. So yeah, you know, at least three mechanisms for us to consider that. Yeah, I think the, my perspective on how some of these things get funded is, as Paul alluded to, we spend quite a bit of money on healthcare these days. Again, I go back to digital is a solution to something. So what problem are we trying to solve? If you look at some of the problems that are facing public health services at the moment, the big one at the moment is how do we recover from growing elective surgery weight loads? Right? So some of the projects we're involved in that are being funded are based on how do we catch up on those growing waiting lists. And you can do that in a number of ways with the support of digital, right? Recently, we launched with one of the health services, we work with a uh, prehabilitation pathway. So while a patient is on a waiting list, can we identify the pre-existing risk factors that a patient has? Can we use that time to provide resources and information to the patient and engage with their GPs around how to reduce the underlying risk factors that a patient has? while they're waiting for surgery, so that when they turn up, their risk profile is much lower, their complication rate is likely to be lower, their length of stay is going to be lower, et cetera. Along similar lines, if you're trying to solve for elective surgery waiting lists, how do you improve the efficiency and flow of patients through things like pre-admission assessments that are eventually end up being the front-end process of, of people having surgery? And then lastly, how do you enable models of care that are, again, clinically validated to reduce the amount of time a patient needs to spend in hospital while they're having a particular type of procedure or treatment? Funding in those cases comes from the funding that's available to try and catch up on those waiting lists, and digital just becomes a component for the overall solution. Right? So again, you can do that in a way that says start small, fund lists in a limited way and measure the benefits within the first few weeks and scale up rather than saying we're going to spend $5 billion of a rollout of something that's going to take five years. And I think that's, that's probably a new way in which these things can be funded. Some great ways to think about what can sometimes seem as a bit of a, an insurmountable or unfundable being, oh, hey, where do we find this big bucket of money? There's plenty of examples there that it, both of you have outlined that solving real practical problems and things that need to happen now in a good way. Thinking then lastly, uh, rounding out the conversation then, busy times ahead, what's going to be on, on your radar and, and what are you going to be focusing on over the next 6, 12, 24? Yeah, thanks, Pete. I, I think one of the really exciting areas for us is we're increasingly working with research organizations that are spending quite a bit of time and energy evaluating new models of care that are enabled by digital health solutions like ours. So universities that are running very structured, randomized control trials that are measuring the clinical benefits of these models of care for patients, where digital health solutions are part of the model of care from, from day one and comparing that to traditional models. Uh, and I think the really exciting thing for us is the opportunity to then connect that to health services in the real world, uh, so the non-research world, and providing them with access to some of these models of care that 
not only have the clinical benefits been proven from a research perspective, but also can be delivered at scale efficiently so they can actually deliver them to large population of patients have a meaningful impact on those health outcomes. So for us, that's a really kind of exciting opportunity to see that now we're just starting to see that kind of bridging of those two areas um, where we're working on the one hand with research groups, the other health services, and increasingly the focus on how do we deliver better health outcomes with limited resources is increasingly a question we're looking at to solve for. So uh, for me, that's that's why we started the organization, why, why we got into digital health in the first place, and then that's a really exciting trend to, to see start to take place. Yeah, the other thing that we're really excited about in the next 12 to 24 months is, is partnerships. One of the things that we're increasingly doing is partnering with both other technology providers, digital health providers, and service providers like ThinkHuman, because increasingly solving some of these big problems in health rely on more than just one solution. And for a long time now, we've integrated into electronic medical record and patient management systems, but increasingly we're starting to develop partnerships with other solutions that complement some of the uh, offerings that we provide, uh, things like data analytics, where we provide you know, high-quality data that can improve the prediction of some of these uh, risk factors. But also where the organization, the health service organization needs some support in, in managing that improvement cycle. So I think increasingly for us as an organization, we're actively working with and working on growing our list of partners that we're, we're working with in recognition of, you know, we want to be part of the broader, broader solutions that, that are needed by the health services that we work with. And to think human, we continue to build on our core capability around supporting organizations to have those genuine conversations and hear those authentic voices through whatever their work is and really trying um, from my point of view now to bring some of that focus into the digital health and the digital health sphere. If I think about a granular issue that um, I'm looking forward to sinking my teeth into in the next 12 months, it is that issue nationally around waiting times for elective surgery. I think there are some really excellent solutions and ways in which we can help organizations address that. And I think there's a really strong moral imperative there. I think there's still this misconception that elective surgery is optional surgery and surgery that can be held off indefinitely. But if you if you unpick the kinds of people that are waiting on these lists, we're talking about people who are immobilized because they can't get their hips and knees replaced. We're talking about people that have high priority but non-life-threatening kind of issues. So I think there's a real there's a real moral imperative there. If I go slightly bigger picture, I think the focus for me from a technology point of view over the next little while really is about the provision of data to point of care. Again, I think there's a moral imperative to deliver patient-informed and patient-in-context data to clinicians at point of care. And there's been a lot of work done around electronic medical records, but nowhere near enough work done around delivering actionable insight to point of care. I think that's massively important. And the way in which then artificial intelligence and machine learning becomes part of that, I think is now, again, part of that big picture data kind of question. So, so they're the things that I think have both a technical but also a very strong moral imperative that have the potential to improve patient care but also uh, to improve the efficiency of the system. Yeah, no, never been a better time. And oh, I like that, Paul, the, the the moral imperative, you know, the things that wouldn't just be nice to do, but we need to do. And I think that resonates with many that got into health for, for the reasons that you outlined, Ken. So look, we'll put the details for... Think Human and Personify Care in the show notes of the episode for people to check out. There'll be a, a good long article on the Talking Health Tech website following this as well. So people listening on their podcast players can click in and then learn more about 
personify and think human and the great work that you guys are doing. So I really appreciate you making the time to come on the show. Lots of good insights for health services and IT teams and CIOs and CEOs and even just the startups that are trying to hustle their way into public health. So thank you for, for sharing your thoughts and experiences on the show. Thanks very much. Thanks, Steve. Before you go, just a reminder to jump over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and watch some episodes there. There are podcast episodes, summit sessions, and a bunch of other interesting content on our channel. You can just search Talking Health Tech in the YouTube app or click on the link in the show notes of your podcast player and it should just take you straight there. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and for more information, visit TalkingHealthTech.com.